Hi all, welcome back to part two of episode 142 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And welcome new patron Kirby. Thank you for coming on board. Now, I'm glad people are enjoying this series. Um, If you haven't listened to part one, you definitely kind of have to for some background and some important information on Everest. This part won't be as long as part one. Part one, um, I crammed in, you know, quite a lot. Uh, but this one will focus primarily on the story of what happened to Fran Arsentiev, as well as some achievements of other women on Mount Everest um, and a little wrap up of you know, what happened uh, post-Fran's untimely death alongside her husband, Sergei. So women make up a relatively small number of summit attempts on Everest. Some have obviously died a- attempting it, but around 65% of those who attempt the summit achieve the feat. That does not mean that 35% die attempting it. It just means that some people turn back and miss out and maybe later on try it again. The first woman to climb Mount Everest was a Japanese mountaineer named Yunko Tabe in 1975. She used supplemental oxygen to achieve this feat. Then came all the you know, different subcategories under that that I guess continue on to this day. In 1979, a German woman called Hannelore Schmatz, who was 39, she became the first woman to die on Everest in written history. She became the fourth woman in the process to summit Mount Everest. But she died during the descent, which is actually the most dangerous or one of the most dangerous parts of climbing Mount Everest is actually descending once you've reached the summit. She died descending via the south route. She, much like Fran Arsentiev, was on the hiking trip up Everest with her husband and actually they were with a group and some Sherpas and for some reason or another, which I don't fully agree with but it was a long time ago, the husband went with one group to approach the summit from one way or And she went with another group to approach the summit another way and they were due to meet up in between. So his group did it first and he actually made the summit and her husband became the oldest person, at least at the time, to summit Mount Everest and he was 50. So on the descent, basically he came back down and tag teamed and Hannah Law and her group went up to the summit. Now, suddenly on the descent, Hannah Law, which can happen quite quickly, especially in the death zone, which we talked extensively about in part two, in part one, Hannah Law and another climber in her group suddenly became very fatigued, which is one of the most common, you know, symptoms of altitude sickness and can actually warn against something worse to come. And basically, once you're in the death zone, you should be out within 16 to 20 hours and back down. That's the maximum experts say you should be in this area. And they'd already kind of reached that or almost. And Hannah Law and this other climber said, we're just going to set up like a very primitive camp situation. I can't remember what the term is, but you're basically sleeping like on a cliff face. And they said, you guys go ahead and we're just going to rest here for a while. Now, 
the Sherpas that were with their group warned against this because if they were to spend another night there, it would be extremely dangerous. Uh, They'd been in the death zone too long already. So while they were kind of discussing this, the other climber who had wanted to sit behind with Hannah Law actually just suddenly died. The altitude sickness became too much and I'll get into what causes the death usually in a bit. But Hannah Law saw this happen and she very quickly realised the gravity of the situation and that despite her really extreme fatigue, it would be a massive mistake to stay here for any longer. And she then attempted to descend with uh, two other Sherpas while her group went ahead. Now, Hannah Law very quickly collapsed and according to a Sherpa who was with her, her last words were, water, water. Uh, And she sat down against her backpack to rest and she then died. Now, Hannah Law Schmatz, unfortunately, her body for a long time was sitting on Everest in a very conspicuous spot, rested against its backpack. And luckily, it's kind of moved out of the way now naturally. But whenever you look up deaths on Everest, it will be a really grotesque picture that that may come up, which will be of Hannelore Schmatz. And it's, um, she's not like Fran Arsentiev or, or George Mallory. She's not kind of waxy and looks like she's just sleeping. Um, she's, it's, it's not, it's not good, um, to look at. And essentially she's still propped up in all her belongings, um, propped up against her backpack and her head is kind of, mummified um, and it's not good. Uh, For years, climbers nicknamed her the German woman as they walked past her. Um, And it just looks like, other than the fact that her head is like mummified and skeletonized, um, just looks like someone who's resting there against their backpack, sitting upright. In 1984, five years later, they attempted to recover her body from Everest. It was a Sherpa and a Nepalese police officer who went up to try to do this and both men fell to their deaths in the process of trying to recover Hannah Law. Uh, Since that attempt, as the mountain has its own plans, I guess, the mountain eventually kind of moved Hannah Law Schmatz out of the way. A big storm had pushed her body at some point, uh, I believe in the 90s, And as a result of this massive gust of wind, it pushed her over one of the very steep cliff faces um, in this area and she's now gone and no one has seen her again. Um, She's lost forever up there. Uh, Basically, there was a Norwegian mountaineer uh, called Arne Nass who climbed... Everest in 1985 and he came across Hannah Law's body as it sat at the time Um, and he described it, quote, I can't escape the sinister guard. Approximately 100 metres above Camp 4, she sits leaning against her pack as if taking a short break. A woman with her eyes wide open and her hair waving in each gust of wind. It's the corpse of Hannah Law Schmatz, the wife of the leader of a 1979 German expedition. She summited but died descending, yet it feels as if she follows me with her eyes as I pass by. 
Her presence reminds me that we are here on the conditions of the mountain, unquote. And that was before she went off uh, one of the cliff faces. The first American woman to reach the summit was a woman called Stacy Allison in 1988. So she becomes the first American woman and then, you know, nationalities compete. First Australian woman, first British woman, on and on it goes. And even Stacy Allison used oxygen. Most people do, as we talked about on, on part one. In 1995, British climber Alison Hargreaves uh, which is funny, it's a combination of the two previous episodes we've done. Alison, um, not Alison McDonald, who am I thinking of? Um, Alison in Belize, what's her surname? Sorry, guys, I've been really sick. Um, it'll come to me. Um, and Bryn Hargreaves, which which I found really interesting. Alison McKenzie and Bryn Hargreaves, uh, which I thought was a weird kind of synchronicity almost. She became the first woman in history to do so uh, without oxygen climbing the mountain. So a Brit did that first. Unfortunately, a few months later, she attempted to climb K2, which is even more dangerous as we talked about on part one than Everest. Uh, She managed to summit K2, uh, but on her descent, she died in a storm that passed over K2. In 2002, Japanese climber Tamei Watanabe became the oldest woman in history to summit Mount Everest at the age of 73. And as far as I know, she retains the record. This year, in 2022, American student Lucy Westlake became the youngest American woman in history to summit Everest. And she has just turned 18. But in 1998, Fran was going for a record yet to be achieved. She was going to be the first American woman, if she was able to summit Mount Everest, to summit Everest without the aid of supplemental oxygen. So I wanted to talk a bit about altitude sickness, which some people I noticed back in the 80s and 90s, they called mountain sickness. So altitude sickness generally starts at around 2,500 metres above sea level. And basically, I learned that when climbing a mountain like Mount Everest, we talked a lot about on part one about how speed is important and sticking to a schedule and not wasting time or staying still for too long is very important climbing Everest. But altitude sickness kind of flies in the face of that in a way because the importance in combating altitude sickness lies in doing things slowly and steadily and resting when you need to. However, sometimes it can be beyond the point of help before people even realise that anyone is sick. Altitude sickness, according to WebMD, is categorised into three different levels. There's acute alcohol, um, alcohol sickness, acute altitude sickness. This kicks in at around 2,000 to 2,500 metres above sea level and is generally kind of categorised by fatigue, dizziness, uh, but generally with oxygen or with um, altitude sickness medications that now exist, or by descending from that level, or by adjusting to that level and giving yourself time, you can generally combat it. Now, the next level is called high altitude pulmonary edema. High altitude pulmonary edema is basically a buildup of fluid in the lungs that can be life-threatening. 
And this is the most common cause of deaths from altitude sickness. And then the next category is high altitude cerebral edema, which is a buildup of fluid on the brain. And this can lead to confusion, stroke, having an embolism, uh, that kind of thing. This is all due to a lack of oxygen. Now, when you reach 5,000 meters on any mountain, there's about half as much oxygen in the air as there is at sea level. So that means a lot of biological effects start to happen. Your blood starts to thicken. uh, Your breathing speeds up, which is something that naturally happens to try to compensate for the lack of oxygen, but it's actually bad. Um, And then by 8,000 meters, which is pretty much what Everest is, Climbers on Everest will generally start to use oxygen tanks to supplement their oxygen supply. And even those who have attempted to do it without oxygen uh, end up having to get an oxygen tank, essentially. Um, 8,000 metres is where cerebral edema is the most common. And it's also pretty much deadly um, if you have a cerebral edema, especially at that altitude. Early symptoms of altitude sickness include headaches, fatigue, um, dizziness, and then you start to go into kind of more complex issues uh, where it gets more dangerous the more time goes on, shortness of breath, um, extreme fatigue where you can't even walk anymore, which is when it becomes very dangerous, obviously, on Everest, Uh, respiratory issues, cerebral edemas, uh, coma and death. And generally this is accompanied by confusion or poor decision-making or inability to form sentences and things like that. Altitude sickness can occur at any point on Everest. People have died from altitude sickness at base camp. It really just depends on how well you have acclimatised, trained and prepared for it. But generally sometimes you're just genetically prone to not be able to tolerate it and people don't even realise that they just can't do it until they get even to base camp. And as I said earlier, generally experts say that once you reach that pivotal death zone, which is the top 3,000 feet of Everest, you have a maximum 16 to 20 hours and you should be out of it and back down again, which doesn't really give you a lot of time uh, to summit, especially if your first attempt or second attempt around summiting is put off by a storm. You can't predict that or something happens or an injury. Um, Some people just have to call off a summit attempt and leave. Now, a study from 1995 that I read titled Symptoms of Infection and Altitude Illness Among Hikers in the Mount Everest region of Nepal stated that all cl- of all climbers on Everest, 57% of climbers experience some level of altitude sickness and 87% experience at least one symptom of it during the study period that they did for this particular thesis. They also in the study add on different um, symptoms, which I've heard about myself, which are uh, of altitude sickness, which are diarrhea, um, swollen face, developing a cough and an upper respiratory infection, all of which can become deadly, um, especially that high up. In 2016, three climbers died in three days from altitude sickness on Mount Everest. And of course, the most important thing with altitude sickness is oxygen. It is a go-to treatment, which is why the mountain is littered with empty oxygen tanks. 
But what happens when your goal is to climb Everest and the entire goal is not to use oxygen at any point on your trip? And that's what Fran was trying to do. According to Men's Journal, nearly 5,000 people have summited Everest with supplemental oxygen to this day, but less than 200 have attempted to summit without it. And as I talked about on part one, even Hillary and Norgay um, or even Mallory and Irvine back in the 20s and Hillary and Norgay in the 50s used oxygen, even they understood uh, how incredibly dangerous it is. I read an outside online article titled What It Takes to Climb Mount Everest with No Oxygen by Colette Harris and she basically followed an Everest climber called Adrian Bellinger who had basically always wanted to climb Mount Everest um, without oxygen. Now, he's he makes it really obvious in the article that how hard it is and how the average person just couldn't do it. Um, and I don't think, honestly, that Fran and Sergey had any chance um, of making it back down. You know, maybe Sergey did, but I don't think Fran did. Adrian Ballinger had already been an Everest guide for years. He had always used oxygen. He'd never had the physicality, even as an Everest guide, to attempt to summit without oxygen. But in 2016, he decided he needed to tick it off his list to do it without oxygen. His first attempt failed. And then for the next full year, he trained and completely changed how he ate, how he trained, everything. And the following year in 2017, his attempt was a success. Now he goes into all the different things that he did. And I honestly don't think that Fran Arsentiev um, had done any of these things to the capacity that someone like Adrian Bellinger had. Uh, it's different saying that you're a keen mountain climber as opposed to what it takes to do this feat. And Adrian Bellinger, he trained for 40 hours a week, a lot of it um, weight training, backcountry skiing, uh, hiking, running, elevation training was huge. He had a super strict diet. He ate purely keto for a year before and a high fat diet because the the year before he failed the first attempt, he said that he relied a lot on carbs and um, sugar. And he felt that his diet made the difference. He said the second time around, he felt like a whole other person. So he was already super fit, already a guide, already really healthy and couldn't do it. And that really painted a picture for me of just how almost impossible this feat is. Kathy O'Dowd is a South African mountaineer and rock climber who has achieved quite a lot in her life. In 1996, she became the first woman in history to reach the summit of Mount Everest from both the south and the north sides. Um, and she was there actually during the 1996 disaster we talked about on yesterday's episode, uh, or part one, uh, along with her then partner, Ian Woodall, who would later become her husband. And they were luckily not in the death zone during what I talked about on part one in the 1996 disaster. Um, but they were, you know, part of those groups. Now, Ian Woodall is an ex-British army soldier and he, you know, was going out with Kathy at the time um, from 1996 onwards. I have to presume they met around Everest because their whole lives revolve around Everest. They're split up now, but at the time. Um, 
So Ian Woodall is quite a controversial figure in the world of Everest lovers, I guess. When the 1996 Everest disaster happened, he was leading the first South African group uh, to climb Mount Everest and to summit it, which included uh, Cathy O'Dowd. They did manage to reach the summit and managed to get down far enough to avoid the unfolding disaster further up that we talked about on part one. So the controversy with Ian doesn't revolve around that. The controversy revolves around the fact that it came out that basically during the descent from the summit, about one day after they summited and started to descend, a fellow team member who was on the South African expedition, Bruce Herod, he was a photographer who was on the expedition. They had essentially left him behind. So basically, according to the New Zealand Herald, who had an article on this, O'Dowd, Woodall and their group left him behind because Bruce Herod said that he wanted to sit down for a while and rest to fix some of his camera equipment. And he basically said, go ahead without me and I'll continue on behind you tomorrow. Now, unfortunately, when Bruce ultimately did carry on alone uh, with his team well ahead of him. He died in a fall um, and the team's glory of being the first South African group to summit Mount Everest was replaced by a lot of flack across the world. It was essentially, you don't leave a man behind. Um, they should have either made him continue on um, or someone should have stayed with him, uh, but they didn't. And as I talked about earlier, one of the most dangerous points of dying on Everest is the descent from the summit. Um, in an interview following his death, uh, his his girlfriend um, at the time he died uh, said that she was incredibly angry at the entire South African group um, and she basically talked about how they were insensitive towards his death. She said some of them, quote, scarcely said they were sorry that he was dead, unquote. Now, Kathy kind of rebuts this in uh, a number of different interviews, including in The Independent in 2007. And at the time, she said, quote, the expedition wasn't perfect and Ian can be a little dictatorial, but I think people often fail to realise how very good he is at things like logistics and organisation and making these things happen. Many of the people who are prepared to criticise have never done what he has done before, unquote. And she's talking about her then partner, Ian Woodall, who I guess made the call to continue on without Bruce. Um, so he copped most of the slack. I think basically it was Bruce in their defence. He wasn't going to go no matter what they said to him. And you have to take the whole group over one person, I guess, in that instance. Uh, but I was surprised a Sherpa didn't stay behind with Bruce, uh, which would often be what would happen. Um, now, I found a really good graphic from the BBC, which had a, a list of the reasons why uh, people generally die on Everest. And I'll give you the statistics now. 29% uh, of deaths on Everest are due to avalanches, 23% are due to falls, 11% are due to frostbite or exposure, 10% are due to altitude sickness, and they have other as 27%. And I think that is uh, medical episodes on the mountain, heart attacks, uh, things like that, that don't fit into one of those other subcategories. So most deaths occur during... Um, 
they also had like where the most deaths happen and most actually occur further down the mountain uh, during between base camp and say camp three. Um, a number, a large number of them are descending after the summit. A number have happened at base camp, not necessarily from altitude sickness or anything. We're counting everything. Someone could have a sudden heart attack up there um, and we just don't know. They don't actually have an official body that documents all this, which I found really interesting. Some, it's the ascent to the summit in the death zone um, and on and on it goes. But in a strange twist of fate, as I saw it, Kathy O'Dowd and Ian Woodall were able to maybe karmically right any wrongs from the 1996 trip in 1998. In 2000, Kathy O'Dowd wrote an extensive piece for The Guardian, which I've read a few times, about her experience discovering the body of Fran Arsentiev, um, which I will take directly from in quotes, but I will sometimes quote indirectly. Um, and I think the importance of her writing this piece was <laughs> Kathy and Ian have got a lot of shit. Uh, and it's often from people who don't know anything about Mount Everest, I suppose. Uh, it's not generally from their fellow hikers. And unfortunately, when Fran Arsentiev was found, the first reports that came out were that Chris, o um, not Chris O'Dowd, that's an Irish actor, um, Kathy O'Dowd and Ian Woodall had left her after coming across her as well. And that is not the case at all. In fact, they were two of the only people who stopped to actually try to render assistance, albeit it was fruitless by that point. And so I think that Kathy for two years was just copping all this crap about the 1996 trip with Bruce and then the 1998 one that I'm about to talk about. And finally, she wrote a book about her experience and her life mountain climbing and wanted to fix the media headlines that you often see. And I'm glad that that's out there because um, it gives you a lot more detail than these inflammatory headlines about how Fran Arsentiev was left alone to die. And it's a lot more complex than that. Um, so at this point in time, Kathy O'Dowd and Ian Woodall were back on Everest um, and attempting to summit it again. Uh, and they were still in a relationship, not yet married. So this was the May of 1998. And it must have felt like history of repeating itself because in the 1996 disaster, that happened in the May of 1996. So they must have started to think, you know, May is pretty cursed for them. But in May of 1998, Kathy and Ian were attempting to summit with the assistance of two Sherpas. Everything, according to Kathy, was well organised on their trip, time to a tee, and went off without a hitch. Uh, they were following a well-worn route up the mountain, um, and they were actually being sponsored by some businesses back home to reach the summit. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, this is how they fund it. I think of Emma Kelty, you know, uh, you know, funded, sponsored by a number of businesses to do what she was doing in Brazil and cross the Amazon River uh, to raise money for charity. And basically Kathy and Ian were doing the equivalent of that on Everest. They kept a very strict schedule and achieving the summit was important to them financially and otherwise. And by May 24th, 1998, the summit of Mount Everest was now officially in sight after, you know, over a month of climbing. 
uh, it was just 240 vertical metres away, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it kind of is when you're talking about vertical metres on Mount Everest. They had what's called the first step, which is very pivotal towards the summit, and it was pretty much right in front of them. In four to five, just four to five hours, they would be standing on the summit, and it was right there within their grasp. And they were well within the death zone. They were currently at 28,000 feet, which, as someone pointed out, is, you know, cruising level for a lot of planes. So this is very high up. As the time of the day and on May 24th and everything like that, um, the first step, which is kind of a cliff face, was casting a shadow over where they were in on their route. And taking a moment for a breather before attempting the first step, Kathy glanced over to her left and there, just 10 metres from her, off the hiking trail um, or the climbing trail uh, was what was very clearly a body. It was dressed in a bright purple jacket. It had black ski pants on, brown boots, um, and it was facing kind of away from the group on this rocky flat surface of what was kind of made of shale. And Kathy describes it as kind of almost like walking on ball bearings. And it was a very steep incline where basically if this this body had seemingly stopped but if it had kept going it would have gone you know thousands of meters off a cliff into one of the biggest glaciers on mount everest so the body was on its side and it was in this unnatural inverted v shape that kathy talks about and she thought that the person was dead, but then looking at it, the body suddenly jerked and Kathy described it as, quote, a horrible movement, like a puppet being pulled savagely by the strings, unquote. So Kathy and Ian were with a number of Sherpas and the Sherpas basically saw what Kathy was seeing, but were motioning to Kathy that they had to keep moving, not only to stay warm, but they had to reach that summit today. You know, everything depended on it. But Kathy, I guess, casting her mind back to the 1996 issue with Bruce, she stood frozen in place, glancing back and forth between Ian Woodall and the Sherpas on one side of her and this body of this person on the other. She then walked over to Ian, her partner, and she said, I have to go and check on that person because I think they're still alive. And she actually felt that it was a member of a Russian team that was currently on the mountain that they were kind of keeping time with. So Kathy very tentatively walked off the trail across this flat very inclined rocky outcrop of shale um, and as she was walking it was all slipping away under her feet and if she was to fall she would go down the slope and fall around 4,000 meters into a gigantic glacier at the bottom um, but she was still going to see if this person was still alive now I'm going to read you quite a lengthy part from her Guardian article because I can't put it any better. Kathy wrote, quote, The person was lying with their harness clipped to a line of fixed rope, stomach uppermost, head and legs dangling down on either side. I, I knelt down cautiously next to the body and saw it was a woman. Don't leave me, she said. Her skin was milky white and totally smooth. 
It was a sign of severe frostbite and it made her look like a porcelain doll. Her eyes stared up at me, unfocusing, pupils huge dark voids. Don't leave me, she murmured again. I felt sick. With her long dark hair, she looked like me. For a shocked second, I felt as if I was glimpsing a possible future for myself. The fact that she was conscious both encouraged and appalled me. It might be possible to save her, or we might yet have to leave her. I need to fetch the rest of my team, I said to her. We have several people here. We will try and help you. I will come back, I promise. Why are you doing this to me, she asked. The woman had no visible trauma injuries and her bizarre position turned out to be the result of complete muscular limpness. She was as helpless as a rag doll. It looked as if someone had clipped her harness to the end of a fixed rope, presumably so she would not slip down the slope, and had then left her to go for help. Next to her was an orange bottle of oxygen, a Russian make, and a mask. The bottle was empty, unquote. So another source I found said that she was repeating the same things that I just read to you over and over, like like a jumping record, like a broken record, and just saying over and over again, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Um, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. Kathy also noticed that this woman had removed her gloves and her jacket, her arms were not in her jacket. They would the jacket was draped over her shoulders, but her arms weren't in the sleeves. And Kathy realised that this woman was clearly suffering from severe hypothermia because this is a symptom of it where you think you're warm, so you start taking your clothes off. But in fact, you're suffering from extreme hypothermia. And she'd removed her gloves and put them next to her, but her hands were so affected by frostbite and hypothermia that they were, you know, massive. They were swollen and huge. So Ian Woodall approaches with a couple of other people um, and Sherpas from the team and basically he and the Sherpas attempted to move the woman out of this unnatural V-shaped position she was in um, and to lay her straight. Uh, They tried to redress her and put her arms into her sleeves but she was so limp it was like dressing a, a rag doll. One member of the team attempted to give her a drink of hot tea from their thermos, but she wouldn't purse her lips or try to sip or anything like that. They tried to have her sit up and she couldn't. She just, they could barely lift her. She was a dead weight. Both men were heaving for air at this altitude, just moving her a couple of feet backwards. Uh, to move her would be impossible and it seems that she was in the final kind of hours of life at this point. Basically, the next point down at this point um, and the closest place to move her on this route was base camp and that would be a three-day climb. And as I talked about on part one, that is with the help of about 10 Sherpas and we're talking a few people on this particular trip. Uh, So, it was fruitless um, and they knew that they wouldn't be able to do it. The group attempted to radio base camp to let them know that this woman was up here alone, but they weren't able to get a response. Suddenly the woman said very clearly, quote, I am an American, I am an American, unquote. 
This really confused Kathy, Ian and the others because the only American official team that they knew of on the mountain at the time was a full day behind them down the mountain. So why would this woman be here if she was part of that group? unless she wasn't part of a group. And then Kathy cast her mind back to the day before when when she was further down the mountain heading up, she saw two small figures in the distance at the foot of the first step, which was now in front of them all. And she at the time noted that it must have been two people not in an expedition doing it on their own, no Sherpas, anything like that. There's no law against doing that. Um, and in this instance, that is sadly the truth. Fran and Sergey were doing it alone uh, with no help. And then the pieces suddenly started coming together for Kathy O'Dowd and she recognised this woman. It was Fran, a bubbly American woman, as she described her, who had she had met very briefly down at base camp in the food tent which is where everyone goes, you know, to have a meal. Fran had been alone. Her husband, Sergey was back in their tent. And Fran had kind of briefly explained to Kathy and other, other people who were in the tent at the time that her and Sergey were doing Everest and planned to summit without supplemental oxygen and without any assistance from any team or any Sherpas. But according to most people, and there's very few who came across Kathy and had any kind of, came across Fran, sorry, and had any kind of in-depth conversation with her uh, before, you know, her untimely death on Everest, uh, they said that what stood out to them about her was that she did not talk about Everest and getting to the top like she was all gung-ho about it and jazzed up and totally driven like everyone else who seemed to do it. Instead, she mostly talked about home and her son, Paul, back home. Now, Kathy started questioning whether Fran had in fact made the summit and fallen descending or was she heading to the summit? All she saw was Fran and who she assumed was Sergey in the distance the day before and it seemed that the two, one was sitting down while the other seemed to be pacing around. And the first step is quite difficult for people sometimes. So they have to attempt it over multiple days, depending on the weather and the conditions. And Kathy just didn't know what order this had happened in. Kathy was also confused because next to Fran's body was an oxygen tank and Sergey and Fran had not been climbing with any oxygen and Sergey was nowhere to be seen and this Russian-made oxygen tank uh, was, next to, was next to Fran. Suddenly, three climbers who were from Uzbekistan approached and Kathy asked them, could you help us move her a little bit? And they looked kind of really flat. And they said to her, quote, we tried to help yesterday. We left her with oxygen. She is too far gone to help, unquote. And that's when Kathy realised that Fran had been there for basically 24 hours already in this position um, and that this group from Uzbekistan had come across her the day before, attempted to render assistance. They had tried to move her too. They'd given her oxygen and tried to warm her up. And then they continued on to summit and they were on their way back and they were kind of shocked that she hadn't died yet. Um, they'd left her some oxygen as well. But as we know, Fran was not able to even speak or move her arms or anything. 
They also advised Kathy and Ian and their Sherpas that they had actually come across Sergey on the mountain, um, I think the day before. They had tried to, he, he had basically headed down to a lower down camp. Um, they didn't know if he had found Fran by that point, but, or if they had been kind of separated during a fall and that's what they thought had happened. Sergey had gone down essentially to one of the lower camps looking for Fran, thinking that she had been there. And when he didn't find her there, he realised she must still be up there um, in the death zone. And he had gone back up once he'd got some oxygen and medication. This is when he'd come across the Uzbek team who had already come across Fran. They had given Sergey directions to Fran but we, to this day, we don't know if Sergey actually found Fran. It seems that he may have succumbed, you know, to either the elements or fallen to his death not long after that. Um, after the group saw Sergey on the 23rd of May, no one saw him again um, until his body was discovered actually in 1999. So at this point, Ian was desperately trying to get Fran Arsentiev to snap out of kind of these days that she was in, in this large, last ditch attempt to try to get her to help herself, even though they knew it was fruitless. And Kathy writes about how Ian grabbed, grabbed Fran by the shoulders and he got right in her face, you know, and he said, you have to help us. If you can help us, we can try to move you down the mountain. If you don't, you are going to die, unquote. And she just gazed back at him. There was the lights were on, but no one was home. Um, and they knew that she was kind of at the end. By this stage, they'd been with Fran for about an hour, a really long time to stay still. They were all frozen. Kathy was turning numb um, and time was slipping away. And eventually the group decided that not only were they not going to summit, but they would have to leave this woman behind. Um, she was basically at the end and it didn't seem to them that she even knew they were there anyway. By the time they left her, she was no longer talking and she'd fallen into unconsciousness. And Kathy felt sick about even attempting to reach the summit now. She wrote, Quote, it was harder for me because she was female. It was not that I thought women immune to the risk, but it was such a male-dominated environment. Everywhere you turned, everyone you talked to was male. I climb because I enjoy it. I climb for the pleasure of the activity, of the surroundings. There was no pleasure left. I wanted to be down, to be off the mountain, to have both feet on flat ground. Unquote. And Kathy and Ian essentially descended after that and abandoned this particular summit attempt on this trip. By the time another group came across Fran Arsentiev, she had died. Like George Mallory, Fran had developed a waxy, white, mannequin, kind of esque complexion, which is how she earned the ultimate nickname, the Sleeping Beauty of Everest. At the start of May 1998, Fran and Sergei Arsentiev had arrived at base camp. On May 17th, they ascended from base camp, advanced base camp, which is further up, to the North Col. Um, and the following day, they reached an altitude of 7,700 metres, which is just over 25,000 feet. And, um, you know, we're getting into 
very low altitude, uh, not sufficient for survival. Uh, as you know, we're not doing it. The two weren't doing it with any oxygen. Um, on May 19th, two days later, they ascended to 27,000 feet, which is known as Camp 6. And at this point, they're well into the death zone. So keep in mind the dates I'm talking about. And the fact that I said 16 to 20 hours is what most experts consider the maximum you should be in this area before you have descended to lower ground. Sergei radioed back to base camp that they were both well and they were going to start their summit attempt the following day at 1am because you start really early because you have to pretty much be done by midday or 1pm. So the following day, after spending that night at a very primitive camp that high up, they started the summit attempt, but they got to the first step and both of their headlamps failed and they had to turn around in order to fix them. Now, this is when Cathy O'Dowd saw them uh, for the first time a couple of days before she would then come across the body of Fran um, when she saw them in the distance and she saw one sitting and one kind of pacing around and that's kind of what we know happened. The following day, they're still in this altitude and it's been like over 48 hours. They again stayed at an altitude of 27,000 feet. They were only able to descend, ascend around 50 to 100 metres before having to turn around and failed that time as well. And then they stayed another night there and we're going into like how many days at this altitude May 22nd, the couple then attempted to reach the summit and they reached the summit finally super late in the day. And by this point, darkness was setting in and things can change very quickly, conditions. So this added just another dangerous aspect uh, to their time up here and the fact that they were alone without a group, without Sherpas, without anyone keeping tabs on them. Sometime during the night of the 22nd into the 23rd of May 1998, we don't know how, but Fran and Sergei Arsentiev got separated and Fran seemingly disappeared and Sergei went looking for her. I believe she was probably extremely affected by the altitude and the oxygen withdrawal at this height for this long um, and this seriously affects cognitive function and decision-making plus hypothermia probably would have set in pretty badly at this point. So when he couldn't find his wife, Sergei headed down to the nearest occupied camp, hoping he would find Fran there. Realising she was not there and probably panicking, he picked up more oxygen and medication and headed back up looking for her. This is when he came across the Uzbek team who had already seen Fran, left her with oxygen and they gave him instructions on how to get to where she was. And the last anyone saw of Sergei was him ascending the mountain again alone, desperately looking for his wife. Likely we know that Sergei died from a fatal fall, um, but he was also probably extremely affected by too long at such a high altitude that maybe he couldn't make sense of the directions given to him by the Uzbek team uh, to find Fran and got a bit spatially disorientated and succumbed to the conditions or felt his death not long after that. And it's horrible to think about being in that state of panic and that's... Yeah, yeah, I've kind of thought about 
when people start to fall, what are their thoughts, you know? The body of Sergei Arsentiev wasn't found until 1999, about a year after the couple's tragic end, even though they had both reached the summit and Fran had technically become the first American woman to do it without supplemental oxygen. Um, although, as I talked about on part one, these Everest purists say that she didn't because you have to reach base camp again, according to their unwritten rules of Everest. A climber named Jake Norton actually stumbled across Sergey's body, which sadly was not that far from where Fran had been found and he hadn't been that far from her when he had tragically fallen. So the following year... Kathy O'Dowd returned to Everest and she became the first woman um, to reach the summit from both the north and the south, this time achieving it. Um, she did it a bunch of times before that as well, uh, but not reaching it from the north and the south. She wrote a book on her experiences on Everest and mountain climbing in general, and she regularly keeps Fran's memory alive through interviews and otherwise. And I've watched a few interviews of her uh, talking about Fran Arsentiev. Fran Arsentiev's body lay there in full view of people uh, climbing the same route and you can find pictures out there but as I've said I'm not posting them to the website because uh, having them publicly available has really upset her son over the years and which I understand so you can go find them. Unfortunately it's like the first picture that comes up. They're not um, close up they're not gory um <clears throat> generally they're from far away uh and you can if you look at the ones from far away you can actually tell just how desolate this area is and on what a crazy incl incline um Fran was on you know uh how she seemingly stopped falling and seemingly the Uzbek team had been the ones to kind of stop her from falling further by clipping her onto something when they came across her, uh, which was, you know, nice of them. Seemingly, they seemed to be really cool, uh, them and Turkish teams. Then time and time again, I came across stories of the people who rendered assistance seemed to be Eastern European teams, which is really cool. But it always kind of was in the back of Kathy and Ian Woodall's minds that she was laying up there year after year, basically mummified and she never got a proper burial and, you know, they it, it just, it bugged them. So in 2007, nine years after they had pretty much been with Fran at the end of her life, Ian Woodall decided that he wanted to head an expedition that was purely to go up Everest to bury the bodies of Fran Arsentiev as well as Green Boots, who we talked about on part one. Uh, both of them lay in very obvious locations, visible by many climbing the mountain, and some people even had to climb over Green Boots in order to, you know, continue on their trip. Now, the trip that Ian Woodall planned and executed, unfortunately, was fraught with bad weather. They were not able to locate Green Boots. Now, some sources say that Green Boots was removed off Everest. He wasn't. Um, he was actually just moved out of the way later on by a Chinese team, I believe, um, a few years after this particular trip Ian Woodall did. 
but they did locate Fran Arsentiev and they draped her body in a US flag and they did a very brief ceremony because uh, the weather was really crazy. They were not able, from a couple of sources I found, to bury Fran due to the hardness of the earth where she lay and um, kind of the lack of snow in the area where she was laying. So what they did was they essentially moved her body um, off the face, off the north face of Everest to a lower spot. They kind of carried her and dropped her down to a lower spot that's not within eyeshot of other climbers. So people aren't gawking at her, you know, the whole time. Thinking back on the 1998 event, Kathy O'Dowd told the New Zealand Herald in 2007, quote, when I think of Francis, I feel lonely. It's a very lonely way to die, unquote. Since Fran and Sergei's tragic deaths on Mount Everest, there have been many deaths, obviously, and many tragedies. Of note, in 2008, 11 climbers died on K2, um, which is actually more dangerous than Everest. In 2014, 16 Sherpas were killed in one day on Everest due to an ice avalanche and Sherpas make up uh, three quarters of people who die on in the Himalayas, particularly on Everest. You may remember in 2015, the deadliest day on Everest was the Nepal earthquake and not taking into account people on the ground because the fatalities were huge, um, but 22 people on the mountain were killed as a result. Um, and if you remember the Dahlia Yehia episode that we did, Dahlia Yehia went to Nepal to um, volunteer with recovery efforts on the ground uh, when she was murdered by her host. In 2016, I, I do remember this happening. A Melbourne woman called Maria Stridom died on Everest um, 15 minutes before reaching the summit. Her and her husband, who they weren't, you know, stupid people, but they were doing it without oxygen. He was a vet and she was a university lecturer. Um, he they basically 15 minutes before the summit, Maria suddenly got extremely unwell and she told her husband, go ahead, you do it and I'll wait here for you. Um, and by the time he returned, whatever had happened to her, which he thought was just fatigue uh, and she needed to rest, uh, it turned out that it was like the worst kind of altitude sickness. Uh, so he got back to her. He basically said he ran up to the summit um, summited and then just got back down to her and it meant nothing because she was sick um, and it soon became clear that she was probably not going to make it. Uh, much like Fran Arsentiev, uh, Maria Stratum was hallucinating. She was she couldn't walk. She was like a limp doll. She was saying really incoherent things, which is all signs of a stroke triggered by cerebral edema, which we talked about earlier. Um, and Unfortunately, she died and they had to leave her on Mount Everest. Uh, her husband basically talks about walking away and looking back and seeing his wife lying there dead and you can't remove her off the mountain. Now, luckily, due to the fact that she had got down the mountain enough in order to have people then kind of extract her body from Everest, uh, they were actually able to send a rescue helicopter um, 
not long after this to pick up her body off Everest. And I read an article about the the pilot of the plane, you know, and how what a dangerous job, but what a kind of heart-rending job it is to be tasked with going up there and, you know, getting these bodies off this mountain. Um, and she was sent back to Kathmandu where she, her body was then um, transferred to a flight and she was flown back to Melbourne um, and she, luckily for her family. But most people aren't that lucky if they die on Everest and they're still up there. I was kind of reading a bit about, you know, Sherpas and what they believe because they're very superstitious when it comes to Mount Everest and dying on Everest and your process leading up to climbing Mount Everest and it's this Tibetan Buddhism that they believe in this element of it where they're, we talked about on part one, but how important the Himalayas and Everest is to them. Um, but basically many of them or most of them believe that accidents occur on Everest when, quote, due respect is not paid to the gods, unquote. So before they climb with an expedition, they do what's called a puja, which is a prayer ceremony, which they offer up things to their gods. And John Krakauer, who went on to write Into the Wild, but as I said on part one, he was on the 1996 ill-fated expedition and luckily lived. He wrote a book about this called Into Thin Air, which I haven't read, but I know about it. And he describes in Into Thin Air about how the Sherpas on that particular trip, when they did the puja, the Sherpas were really anxious and felt it was a bad omen because their puja ceremony with the people on it from the different groups, Rob Hall and the like that I talked about on part one, they were acting like it was a party and it's a serious ceremony. And then the 1996 disaster happened and I think that reaffirmed for the Sherpas that their superstitions, at least in their minds, are correct. And I just found that interesting. Um, so if you're going to climb it, you got to go through this process. Even if you don't believe it, I think I think you should go along with it because it's their land and, you know, Buddhism is one of the least harmful religions or ways of life or lifestyles in the world. So I wanted to wrap up with a quote from a British PhD in sports psychology called Matthew Barlow. He's a keen mountain climber and he was quoted by the BBC in 2015 um, about, you know, why people climb Mount Everest and he kind of talked first about how it's actually not interesting and if you're looking for an adventure sport, that's not the one to do it. It's quite dull. It's very tedious. Every day can be very, can be kind of a drudge when you're mountain climbing and you should probably do something else if you're looking for that heart pumping thing. Um, but he was talking a little bit about kind of the research that he's done for his thesis into the personality is behind mountain climbers and mountaineers. So I'm going to wrap up with that quote. Quote, a climber himself, Barlow suspected that sensation-seeking theory has long been misapplied to mountaineers. His research suggests that compared to other athletes, mountaineers tend to possess an exaggerated expect expectancy of agency. In other words, they crave a feeling of control over their lives 
because the complexities of modern life defy such control, they are forced to seek agency elsewhere. As Barlow explains, to demonstrate that I have influence over my life, I might go into an environment that is incredibly difficult to control, like the high mountains, unquote. I don't know what became of Fran's son, Paul. I know he's out there, um, but, you know, he's an adult now. He's my age, so uh, he's probably a man with his own family. Who knows? Um, and it's, yeah, my thoughts go out to him. I hope that you've learned something on this two-part episode uh, about the story of Fran and Sergey, along with a lot of other people's stories as well. Um, I may not be back next week. I don't know yet. My, As you can tell, my voice is just wrecked. And I really wanted to get this done, um, but I think I need to rest it a bit um, on top of other things that I have going on in my life next week. Um, I may be back, but it may be the week after. Visit the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. I've put up Fran and Sergey's page and also linked the documentaries, including Storm Over Everest and the Sherpa documentary that I watched on there, Embedded It. It's a YouTube one. Um, become a Patreon if you like the show. Uh, I can't be bothered on this episode going into all the tears and stuff, uh, but it's an awesome community. Um, if you don't want to join the Patreon because some people are like, oh, it's just another app, but I want to give to your podcast. Uh, the podcast PayPal is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Um, just a reminder, I'm not accepting case requests at the moment because I just have so many and I'm just uh, getting a bit stressed with the backlog and <laughs> the number of Patreon location requests I've got coming up. I'm doing as much as I can, as you can tell. I've recorded like five hours over the last uh, seven days uh, for the podcast, so I need to be, take a bit of a break so I'm getting a bit incoherent, actually. Um, and leave a rating or review if you like the show. And also on Spotify, there's a community feature and I've put up a question for this episode about would you climb Everest or have you? So um, if you listen on Spotify, head to this episode page and you'll see that and you can reply and um, yeah, let me know. I'd like to hear from people um, if they have. I will be back when I'm back with an all new episode. It will be a Patreon location request. Uh, I've got some really diverse cases coming up. Don't worry, everyone is on the list. Uh, there's probably about 20, so please don't ask me when yours is because I'm working through them as quickly as I can and I never, ever miss anyone. Um, it just so happens that, you know, you have to wait a few months uh, and that's just the way it is at the moment. Um, some really interesting cases. I actually... I use um, a, an app called Trello for my work. It's awesome. It's a lot of you probably do. It's like a, you create boards and you organize yourself. And so I've got my work board and my clients boards, and then I've got um, an unknown passage board. And, and so when someone becomes a patron and they choose a location request, I find a case and I put it into the Trello and each one gets a card and I add a cover picture. And so I've, when I open it up, I can see everyone's pictures. Like, um, you know, I'm looking at them right now and it kind of makes it a lot more real. You know, I'm looking at the top picture of uh, Fran and Sergey on the cello right now and then I scroll down and I've got, you know, a young woman and an older man, a young woman, an older woman and um, a famous guy and um, a building and then, you know, to not give it away. And sometimes, you know, when I'm 
picking one to do because I usually work in chronological order, but sometimes uh, depending, I'll, I'll move one up a little bit to mix up locations we go to. I'll kind of scroll through and see who speaks to me in some sort of weird um, woo-woo kind of way. And, and that's kind of um, sometimes how it goes. And then I've got a I've got a column that has episodes I want to do because I mix up Patreon location requests and my own ones. And so I scroll over to that and, you know, I've got their pictures as well and it kind of makes it um more real and, yeah, it's weird. I feel like I kind of carry them around with me. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just incoherent. But um, I will be back when I'm back. I hope you guys have a good week. I will go and chug some more of this tea. Um, It was my Yoko's birthday yesterday. She turned seven. She's not talked during this episode because I um, stuffed her mouth full of T-R-E-A-T-S. I have to spell it because she's right in front of me um, before this episode so that she would not talk um, because it's after dinner and she's entitled to them. So, yeah, she is older now, but no less mental. Um, I'll be back and I hope you guys have a good week. All right. Bye.